Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Hockey Journey Podcast, episode number 28, The Glen Healy Hockey Journey, presented to you by OnlineHockeyTraining.com. I'm your host, Coach Lance Pitlick. If you're new here, please make sure you subscribe so you won't miss out on any future episodes. Before we uncork this conversation, if you want to learn more about me, my hockey experiences, what I know, and most importantly, how I've been helping players get really good with a stick and puck, just head on over to OnlineHockeyTraining.com and gain instant access to my 10-part video series where I'll show you everything. Consider it my gift to you. My next guest, goaltender Glenn Healy, is a Canadian-born hockey player who played his college hockey at Western Michigan University and then went on to play 437 NHL games with the Los Angeles Kings, New York Islanders, New York Rangers, and the Toronto Maple Leafs over a 15-year career. During the 1993-94 season, he won a Stanley Cup with the New York Rangers, erasing a 54-year drought for the Blue Shirts. Once retired, Mr. Healy spent some time in the broadcasting sector working for the CBC, TSN, and Rogers is currently the president and executive director of the NHL Alumni Association, so we have a lot to talk about. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me in welcoming Glenn Healy to the show. Glenn, welcome to the Hockey Journey Podcast. Wow, that's a great introduction. So show's over. Thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks for tuning in. <laughs> uh, you're very, very kind. But uh, yeah, that would be the uh, a resume for me right there. And uh, just happy to be part of the show. And and part of all the good things that uh, you're doing with the podcast. Fantastic. Glad to be part of it. Well, thanks. I, th- I think this is a, a great platform to, uh, to tell stories. And uh, for others, especially uh, kind of why I got into this is because I get in front of a lot of uh, young aspiring hockey players, both boys and uh, girls, that want to uh, achieve some pretty high goals playing college hockey, the Olympics, or professionally, uh, ultimately the NHL. So to, to be able to hear some stories and uh, maybe pick something that worked for others or uh, something else that you might be able to add to your process if something tough you know, happens and uh, gives you the ability to maybe navigate through that a little easier. So uh, let's begin here. Glenn, uh, I've not, I don't think we've ever met in person, have we? No, I uh, played against each other, and um, I don't know if you've scored against me, but you certainly probably, if you played against me, you you joined the pile when your hands were raised, <laughs> whoever did <laughs> score against me. Uh, but uh, you know what? That's the great thing about our sport is uh, we have so many great ambassadors that play the game, leave the game, and carry on some of the traditions like you're carrying on. And every player has a story. And that's what I love about a lot of the players now that are doing podcasts is they're telling those stories. I worked in television for many years with Hockey Night in Canada. And because you've got to get the puck drop and because intermissions are so quick, we never get to tell those stories. And some of them can be inspiring and maybe can help the next wave of players that want to do what we did, which is the best job you'll ever have in your life to play in the National Hockey League. But even if you don't achieve that, my gosh, to be able to go, to go to college, to get an education, but to create friendships and life lessons that will last a lifetime, uh, the sport has gifted us with a lot of real good gifts. And the fact you didn't score on me, well, maybe that was my gift to you. But uh, the fact that, you know what, we can sit in a room and, and have a cold libation and not have met or not have chatted, uh, it, it's still a, a special thing to be an NHL player. Uh, a quick story, we were down in New York. The Islanders invited every single alumni that had ever played for the Islanders back. And uh, Ty Domi showed up, and it, he wasn't an Islander, but he showed up at the game, and he was in my box. And there were so many players who just wanted to meet Ty. And one of them, Mick Lakota, had said, I, I've never talked to him before. He's only beat me up. But I've never had a chance to talk to him, so I love to talk to him. <laughs> so that was, that was kind of their first introduction, and uh, I, I took a snapshot of the two of them. The first time that they actually spoke without a dance, and I thought that was pretty cool. But um, our sport certainly is a special one with special people. Well, if I would have scored on you, uh, Glenn, I think your career would have been a lot shorter. Uh, <laughs> 
Hell, Mike Keenan, <laughs> we would have made sure of it, I'm sure. Yes. Oh, we're going to talk about him later. So I'd like to start the conversation with you by taking us back to the beginning. Tell us how your family ended up in Pickering, Ontario, uh, your earliest memories of your childhood. Well, so my dad fought in World War II for the Scottish. And uh, when the war ended, uh, there were no jobs in Scotland and no money. Clearly, he'd fought five years for, for the British. And you could get two pounds to emigrate to Canada. He thought, wow, Canada, no job, but I get two pounds. So let's go. And so that was the start of kind of the Healy journey in Canada. Uh, when I was a, a youngster, we, uh, we belonged to a church and they had a church league for hockey players. And all of my friends were playing. So my dad thought it would be natural that I go learn some life lessons and play the sport that Canada uh, had given us. Certainly wasn't much hockey in Scotland, but uh, that's how it started for me. Five years old. I don't remember much when I was five. I do remember crying on my way into kindergarten the first day. I remember that. And I also remember the very first time I skated, which was on a pair of Gordie House skates. And uh, put the skates on and uh, can remember that first year. It was the buzzer system. So you would play for two minutes and then the buzzer would go off and you'd leave the ice. So the two minutes was up and then you'd make your way back on that first year. I never touched the puck one time in the entire season. And my dad, who's the coach of the team said, let's make him a goalie. That way the puck will come to him. He doesn't have to go chase it around the ice. And and that was my earliest memories of starting. And just that, that chance to play a game that again, my parents totally foreign to people that grew up eating haggis, wearing kilts and playing bagpipes. (laughs) So when when did you get introduced to uh, to goalie? Because most kids, you know, they would they dream of scoring the goals. When did stopping them become your thing? Well, again, it was my first year not touching the puck once, and my my dad saying, "Hey, put him in net. The puck will come to him." Uh, and my brother at the time, who's older than me, he had uh, all the equipment, so it was just natural that. You could just transfer the equipment over from him to me. And now, granted, it was way too big. And for the most part, I stood for the national anthem and then fell down. And that was it. I couldn't get back up. Uh, but that was the position that kind of I enjoyed. I started with almost after my basically my first year. And, well, you know, a lot of the kids today will play goal because they love the masks. That looks really cool. You know, the paint job and. Uh, That wasn't the case for me. I got put in goal because the equipment was there and I sucked at playing forward. So time to be a goalie. He can't skate, put him in net. (laughs) So in Minnesota, we have community-based hockey during the winter seasons where where players grow up playing basically with the same group through high school. What was your developmental path climbing the hockey ladder? Well, so as time kind of went on, that that first uh, couple years, uh, I was playing on a, a Catholic team that had the age group was from five to nine. So you can imagine the nine-year-olds were pretty darn good. The five-year-olds were pretty darn lousy. And so the competition level, believe it or not, on that you know team uh, in a in a town like Pickering that is known for its eight nuclear reactors and not much more. Uh, we had three guys that made the NHL. Billy Carroll played with the Islanders. Dirk Reuter played with the Buffalo Sabres and myself. And so, wow, what beginnings for that team. But as time went on, you, you know, you tend to find every uh, well finds its level. And I moved on to an all-star team. And then there was an opportunity for me to look ahead and think, I could get a college scholarship. And I know a lot of kids in Minnesota. I live with a couple from Hibbing uh, up in the Iron Range in northern Minnesota. And uh, it was a chance to go to school and get an education. And my dad was always under the opinion, if you learn, you earn. And you'll have a job uh, that will be fruitful and purposeful if you go to school and do what you like to do in, in that vocation. And so that was my journey. Go, go to school, get an education, never dreaming of playing in the NHL. That was so far-fetched because um, I wasn't good enough. And so getting that education, I think, helped me to make the NHL because there wasn't this pressure that you 
oh, you got to make it. You're 14 years old. You're playing junior A in Canada. And if you don't make it, it's boom or bust. There was no bust. Again, with a couple degrees in my back pocket, I would have been able to go out and, and, and enjoy whatever craft that I decided to do on the other side without skates on. And so it, it, it led me to a great education, great friendships, and then eventually a, a long career in the NHL. So I'm curious because, you know, you're in Canada. I mean, your, your dad was that much of an influence. Did you have pressures to, to play major junior uh, up there? Because I know, you know, we're close in the same age and, uh, you know, major junior wasn't even talked about down here in the States, but up in Canada, wasn't that like where you wanted to go? And for you to take the college route made you kind of an oddball? Well, you're right. And that's all that was talked about in Canada. The quickest route to the NHL is through major junior. And there was pressure on me to play for the Peterborough Peets, which at the time were one of the better teams in major junior. My first year of eligibility actually won the Memorial Cup. So they were a really good team. But I was never drafted in the NHL and I was never drafted into major junior. So the reality of being a non-drafted player at the junior level and making it probably was slim being a non-drafted player and making it to the NHL slimmer. Uh, it just worked out uh, whether I was a late bloomer or whether I was given a chance or whether that power of the moment fate took over and that chance turned into a real opportunity for me. But there wasn't this real push or pressure uh, as being a top prospect or a top pick to pick one or the other, because if I had picked major junior and even stepped on the ice with that team, I would have lost all eligibility to be a college player. And so a lot of players are faced with a tough decision at the age of 15 or 16. And that, that's a, a tough age to be making a decision for the rest of your life. Because if you pick college and it works out uh, and you get your degree, you pretty much have set a standard where I can do something the rest of my life and enjoy it. If you pick junior and you're bust and you don't make it, you really don't have much to fall back on. So for me, uh, it just just happened that I wasn't in the right place at the right time to get drafted, to have all that pressure on me. And college was the route that I chose to go very early on in my development. At 15, I was on my way to college, even though at the time in my back pocket, I didn't have a single college offer, uh, but just thought this would be a, a good way to become the first and only ever educated Healy in our family. So Wow, that seemed to work out pretty good for me. But but there wasn't the pressure to uh, to jump into one league or the other. It was more what would be best for your journey in life. And I think I've made the right choice. That's amazing that you had that foresight that early. Uh, you know, in today's game, it's nice that there are so many opportunities for players uh, as they keep climbing the ladder. But for me, I think that uh, there's way more players that that need to have that extra time to develop. And uh, if you go up in major junior in Canada, you know, up in Canada, I mean, I, I think what the oldest you can play there is 21. Uh, you know, and for if you play juniors like in the USHL or something like that, you can play there until you're like 20 and then go in as a 20 year old in college. I mean, uh, you got a chance to have three more years of development and experiences. Uh, you made it pretty clear cut that that's where you were going to go, uh, you know, and you ended up with two degrees. How, how was your time there where you, you know, as far as your teams and playing, we knew that you, you were smart and uh, had that going for you and was a, a major part of your day, but you also were developing as a hockey player. When did you think that you could maybe, uh, make it to the next level? Oh, I really haven't even realized that I did make it to the next level. Sometimes <laughs> I wake up and go, uh, you know, we were in New York on the weekend. I thought, it's hard to believe we played here, and it's really hard to believe we won a cup here. Like, you forget just how great that journey was as NHL players. You know, I, I think when it, when it came to college, uh, there were a couple things that stood out. I had lots of opportunities to go to many schools. I probably had 30 colleges that were speaking about attending their their place of of worship you know the the, the hockey arena so to speak and uh western michigan said to me their coach you'll play every game for four years 
oh, well, this is an easy one. I'm going to go here, right? There's, a, again, yeah. an opportunity to play all the games. And there were other schools that gave me opportunity. But, you know, they had all-American goaltenders like uh, Ron Scott, who at the time was playing for Michigan State. Didn't really want to go there and watch him play. Would rather have played even if I was to play and lose. So Western became a, a Michigan became a real opportunity for me to play and to get a great education. And, you know, the two degrees came about as a result of failure in the sense that my first year schooling was easy, first semester particularly, uh, and found it to be a bit of a breeze. And then the second semester, I kind of lost my way and found it to be a bit of a bust in the sense I had to stay back and do summer classes, which led then for me getting my first degree uh, in marketing early. Uh, but there was nowhere for me to play in the NHL. No one was offering contracts. So I continued and stayed on for my fourth year at, at University of Western Michigan and then locked and loaded a finance degree. So, you know, by not having that opportunity, it led to more of an opportunity to to get a more complete education package. And then after my last year of playing, uh, it was the LA Kings who came knocking. Uh, they, had, again, recruited the CCHA very heavily because they had Gary Galley and Dave Ellett, who both played with Bowling Green. They were part of the LA Kings roster and so, um, or the NHL roster, so to speak. Dave was went to Winnipeg, but, uh, you know, for the most part, they were watching these the teams play and was given an opportunity and it kind of fell into place. But, you know, when you look at colleges today, you look at the arenas, you look at the fan base, you look at the way they travel, the way they train, the way the players are treated. It is as good as most NHL teams. And that is just the harsh reality. Uh, some of the clubs, the arenas, North Dakota, Wisconsin, you go down the entire list. It's not the days of playing in Ohio State, which was kind of an old dumpy barn and you thought you were playing back in the prairies of Canada in, in some of those days. Uh, not at all now. It is, it's major league sport and major league recruitment. And you're right about the age in the sense that it gives NHL teams, because of their economics and the way the cap works, a couple more years of getting to watch a player and letting him develop into becoming a man and not have to make a decision on a player when he's 17 or 16 years old, and he's not even finished growing yet. So, right, so it right. does give you that benefit. And for, the, for that reason, there are more and more college players that are drafted, mature, stay in college, and end up then leaving college at some point, either at the end of their senior year or before, but at a much later age and much more mature. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, I mean, there's – there's good. Uh, it's great that there's so many opportunities for players to to play uh, today than there was back when you and I were that age. So you talked about. I I, I want a little more clarity on this. You were never drafted. But you, you mentioned that, but how did you actually end up in LA? You talked about Gary Galley. Were you playing against them at Bowling Green at some point, or how yes, did that happen? Yeah, it was the CCHA finals, and uh, Bowling Green was the number one team in the country. Uh, we weren't. And uh, we had a game at Joe Lewis Arena, and it uh, happened to be uh, a game that was heavily scouted because Bowling Green was the number one team in the country. Rogie Vashon at the time was the general manager of the LA Kings. Pat Quinn was the coach. And uh, I had probably one of the best games I've ever had as a player. A number of saves, north of 70. <laughs> shot, got outplayed, got outchanced, and uh, we won the game. Uh, and, you know, that would have put an end uh, to Bowling Green season, the number one seed. Uh, but the CCHA decided, you know, that really wasn't fair. They really were better. We're taking them anyways. Western Michigan, go have a seat and enjoy your summer. And Rogie Bashan was in the stands and said, sign that kid. I mean, I don't know who he is, but he played pretty good today. And that opened the door for me to get an opportunity. I uh, still can't tell you why I had that game. I haven't had one since. I'm almost 60. But that was a day that everything uh, wasn't the first star at dodgeball on that particular day. The puck was hitting me. And so that opened the door for me to get a chance to begin a professional career. What do you think was more uh, your parents were more proud of? You getting a college degree or signing a professional contract? Uh, definitely the college degree. There's no question that uh, they couldn't believe that someone, again, who grew up next to a nuclear reactor 
could actually go to school in the States and someone else would pay for all of your education and you would come out of it with a degree or two in your back pocket. Uh, it's a pretty good country, Canada. Yes. So, and that's exactly what happened. But, you know, I don't, you know, they got to watch me play. They got to watch me raise the cup. They got to, you know, and, and share in a bunch of memories that I had as a professional. Uh, but really getting that opportunity to, to be, um, you know, in a college situation and, and to finish a degree, one that I had started, I think they were more proud of that than the Stanley Cup in, in a lot of ways. Uh, although that we did have one hell of a party with the Cup. So you probably have to ask, they're, they're up in heaven watching down now, but you'd have to ask them, was the party better or was the graduation better? Um, <laughs> they, might, they might look at the party as a pretty cool thing too. Yeah, no, that's neat. So you're out in L.A. now as a professional hockey player. Tell our listeners the story about when you first found out Wayne Gretzky was coming to L.A. and what impact that that had on the team and the game of hockey. Well, you got to remember, here we were in L.A. We had uh, four games that were sold out. So 36 of our games <laughs> were not sold out. Uh, we're dancing around the league with maybe the toughest team in hockey. So you're looking at uh, Ken Baumgartner, you're looking at Larry Playfair, you're looking at Tiger Williams, you're looking at, just go down the list, J.P. Kelly, it, with Al Tour. It was just, we could beat anybody up anytime, any place. Now, handling the puck and having stick blades on our sticks, that was a different issue. No, we weren't really good at that. But dancing around the league with yellow pants and yellow helmets, not really winning a lot. Uh, and then that summer I was in Pickering, you know, a uh, nice Saturday afternoon. And I had run into Bob McKenzie, who is hockey's kind of guru for scoops in Canada, ran him to a parking lot. And he said to me, are you going to the press conference? And uh, what press conference? You guys are getting Wayne Gretzky on Tuesday or whatever day of the week it was. And I thought Bob McKenzie has clearly lost his mind. The best player in the game at the time, is going to come to the LA Kings? Not a chance. <laughs> days later, the LA Kings announced Wayne Gretzky, now a member of the Kings. So if you think about the transformation, we changed our sweaters. Uh, we had Bruce McGall as the owner. It was the place to be, to go to a game, the star appeal from Ronald Reagan going to games, John Candy, Neil Diamond, Tom Hanks. It's the who's who of LA coming to watch the LA Kings. We were the team. Every game was sold out, both at home, on the road. And with the addition of one player, we were a 100-point hockey club. And when Gretz got there, uh, he did not disappoint. First training camp was in Victoria. He sat beside me. And I spent the entire training camp not picking pucks out of the net that he had scored on me, not getting to know him, telling reporters to get off my damn equipment because I was sitting beside him and all they did was stand <laughs> on my pads, on my pants. And it was like, please, would you give me some space? But there were more reporters at that first training camp than the Stanley Cup final the year before where the Kings had won, uh, the uh, Edmonton Oilers had won the cup. And so that revolution of hockey led to, you know, just a growth in, in the Southern sphere of hockey whether it was Florida, look at what Tampa's done. Again, all of a result of Wayne Gretzky coming to California, the Ducks winning the Cup in 06. That wouldn't have happened without Wayne. The San Jose Sharks, Arizona. The, the list goes on and on of expansion based on the fact hockey became something big in the South. And I watched it in L.A., I watched the stars that wanted to play this sport, and I watched them build new rinks. And those new rinks led to new players and led to draft picks now currently from L.A. that are getting picked in the first round. I mean, my first year in Los Angeles at Culver City, and I'm sure you practiced there, we didn't even have lines on the ice. You'd put the yeah. net where you thought it should be, and if they scored stick side, I just moved the net. I didn't change where I was standing. I just, eh, the net should be over here now. And so you think about that now, a new arena in Los Angeles, no longer the forum, the practice facility, state of the art, but the growth of the sport uh, based on that trade that summer where Bob McKenzie broke the news to me and I thought he was clinically insane. Not so much, but uh, a great experience playing with the greatest player, I think, 
in the game uh, at a time where he took our team and elevated us to a level we didn't think we should be at. So I, since uh, we've, we've uh, moved on, there's been some incredible players that have come along with Sidney Crosby, Nathan McKinnon, uh, Connor McDavid. Uh, I mean, there's some really good ones out there. You still think the great one is the greatest one of ever of all time? Well, you would have to play 16 years in the league, which is a long career, very, very long, and score 200 points a year to come close to his records. 200, <laughs> not not 20, not 100, which would be a benchmark of exceptional play in, in any given season, 200. And, you know, people will say, well, the game was different. The goalies were different. I lived it. And uh, he clearly was, in my mind, um, and the, the greatest to ever play. Now, okay, you can argue Gordie Howe, and we're arguing, would you rather have a Ferrari or a Lamborghini? It's yeah. great. I'll take either one of them. You <laughs> can argue Bobby Orr, maybe not the longevity of a career that a Wayne had or a Gordie had. I mean, Gordie played in five different decades, for goodness sakes. Uh, but, you know, these are all, you know, you can have a conversation, an argument. We can do it over a beer. Uh, I'd take any one of the three. I played with Wayne on two different occasions with two different teams. So that's just my life lesson of, of getting a chance to play with him, watch his magic, and playing against him, you know, preparing for a playoff series against the Edmonton Oilers. And at the end of the first period, it's 6 nothing Edmonton. And all you're thinking is, could we keep the clock running? And would somebody please start the jet? Because this thing is over. And uh, <laughs> we had one particular game. We were losing by a, a touchdown and maybe a little bit of a field goal. And the glass broke behind the nets. And they were going to take some time to fix it. It was in the second period. And uh, the referee came over to tell Pat when that was the case. And Pat said to the referee, do you mind if we keep the clock running? You can fix the glass, but keep the clock running. So, uh, but, you, you know, that that's a great conversation to have. But, uh, you know, those three, and you can put Mario and Bellavo into the conversation as well. These are royalty in our game that have paved the roads for, you know, players like you and I to get to drive on those roads. They're, they're the greatest that ever laced up their skates. Yeah, I had, growing up, I had a life-size poster. Uh, my uncle worked at the airport and somehow that, fell off the truck and I know it's kind of the same way you got your uh, first pair of hockey uh, goalie pads falling off the truck but he was Wayne was I looked at him before I went to bed uh, every night when I woke up in the morning not wanting to be him but just like idolizing the guy I mean he's he's he doesn't have any bad marks on him the guy has just been the perfect ambassador of the game yeah, and, and, you know, sometimes people, um, when you get to know him, you realize there's no phoniness there. He is absolutely genuine in every way. And when it comes to our alumni, when it comes to the players that have played the game with him, against him, before him, and will play after, there is nobody that is more giving to the, the alumni group than Wayne. He, he clearly understands what the honor was to, and privilege to play in the NHL. He doesn't take it for granted. Uh, from a small town in Canada, his dad would open up the museum that he had in the basement to let any hockey fan come in and wander around. It, he's a grounded, caring person with all kinds of great traits. Uh, and yet, you know, he's a guy where if you walk into his house, you wouldn't know he played hockey. There's no Stanley Cups. There's no framed sweaters. He's got a picture of him and the Pope. That's it. So clearly you must be someone important because you know that guy. Um, no, that's not the Pope saying it. Okay. That's us saying it about Wayne and the Pope. So, uh, but no airs about him and, and uh, really uh, the right time, the right player, the right person to help grow our sport. What we have today to 32 teams when it started with six and wow, went to 12 and 16 and 21 uh, a lot of that has to do with the fact that he he opened up everyone's eyes uh, south of the border to make a, a big difference, particularly in states where sandals, shorts, and uh, running shoes are the the flavor of the day. Uh, well, thank you, Wayne. We uh, we appreciate it. it was uh, unreal just watching your career and still what you're doing today. So your next stop saw you uh, move over to the New York Islanders. And during the 92-93 season, something 
uh, happened that really shocked the hockey world, and that was you guys defeating the two-time Stanley Cup champion Pittsburgh Penguins in the Western Conference Finals. Did that one go to seven games? Seven games in overtime, so we couldn't. I guess oh. we could double overtime. I mean, but yeah, overtime and a David Bullock goal in Game Seven was the dagger. Yes, that had to have been uh, a bit of a party after that. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think the big thing here, you, you, the team we had with the Islanders. If you look at the team that played in the eighties, uh, they did something that no other team will ever do. They won nineteen straight straight playoff series. Wow. Uh, no one will do that. Toronto, currently, we can't get in the second round. They haven't won two. So let's look at 19 straight. They were a dynasty. And then it was time to rebuild and, you know, enter a bunch of young guys like myself. We had three young defensemen in Malakoff, Kasparitis, and Dennis Vasky. We were rebuilding in every way. We still had some holdovers with experience like a Pat Flatley like a Mullen, like a Claude Wazelle, but for the most part, it was rebuild time. We came up against this Pittsburgh Penguins team. We had lost Pierre Turgeon in the series before when uh, Dale Hunter hit him 35 minutes after he scored the clinching yes. goal, if you remember yes. that. So we lost our best player, and we're going up against the Giant. We're going up against, uh, you know, really a dynasty team in Pittsburgh. And Al Arbor, who was a great coach, the best I ever had, pulled his seat up in front of the locker room and asked each guy one by one if they could just tie a shift against Mario Lemieux. Not win, just tie. And each guy, of course, would say, yes, of course I can. And then to Pat Flatley, yes. Ray Ferraro, yes. Benoit Hogue, yes. So there you go. First period's over. Let's go to the second period. And Al's message was, all we have to do is one win one shift in game seven in overtime. And we beat him. And we get to game seven, overtime, the David Bullock goal. And I thought, he's right. That's exactly what happened. But wow. he broke it down in the simplest of ways. If we had thought about the enormity of beating Pittsburgh, we wouldn't have done it. They had everybody, Yager, Lemieux, Francis, just go down the list. They're almost all in the Hall of Fame. Lemieux single-handedly could have beat us. And so just taking it step by step, minute by minute, shift by shift, uh, we were able to do something that was spectacular for our group in the 90s, something that we we couldn't have believed at the start of that series that we could do. But Al put that seed of faith in us with the, with the comment and the belief that we believe. And uh, in that locker room, we did. It's hard to believe, but we did. And it was a, a great series. Ray Ferraro was at his best. And, uh, and we pulled it together at the right time against uh, – probably which, which I still see Mario today. And he looks at me and says, how did you guys win? Um, I can't give you the answer, but we did. <laughs> and uh, we, we've lived as a group ever since and, and uh, cherish that memory for sure. A quick word from our sponsor, Sniper's Edge Hockey. Sniper's Edge Hockey is your one-stop shop for your at-home hockey training needs on and off the ice. Find the perfect start to your at-home training area with slick tiles, synthetic ice, or a rink liner. Or upgrade your home setup with one of our top quality training tools to help you work on soft hands, all of your deeks and dangles, perfect your one-timer, and improve the power and accuracy of your shot. Find it all online and in stock for immediate shipping at snipersedgehockey.com. So in that off-season, I believe, after that, there was an expansion draft that saw you on the move again. But what happened to you didn't uh, end when you were claimed by Anaheim uh, in the expansion draft that year. Tell us what happened after that. Well, after the Islander series uh, and the season was over, there was a, a group of us that went to Ireland for vacation. And we were staying in the west coast of Ireland in a little place called Connemara County. And no cell phones. Uh, back in the, we had no cell phones. There was no phone where we stayed. No phone. And so picked up again by Anaheim. Islanders left me un, unprotected. And then uh, day two of the expansion draft, the Tampa Bay Lightning were able to pick up one player from the expansion draft as part of their rules from the expansion draft the year before. They picked me. The Rangers at the time had lost John Van Beesbrook to Florida. We're looking for a goalie to work with Mike Richter and work a trade out with the New York Rangers. 
I think in advance. And the whole time when I went from Anaheim to Tampa to the New York Rangers, everyone was desperately trying to get a hold of me to tell me that I had made uh, the move and was now a duck. And then, oh, no, now he's a lightning. No, now he's a ranger. And couldn't get a hold of me, calling my home, no answer, no return call. I think everybody thought I was a complete asshole. Like, this guy's not calling me back <laughs> and didn't know that I was even picked up. Uh, it wasn't till we went to one of the oldest pubs in Ireland that Pat Flatley had decided to call his mom to see how she was doing. And she was the one who told Pat in her Irish brogue, he's now a ranger. You wouldn't believe it, Pat. And again, Pat couldn't believe it because of the journey we had been on with the Islanders. But that was, in fact, the case. So I went from Benedict Arnold, went from the Islanders to the Rangers, the two most hated rivals. And I don't know if I was ever embraced by the Islanders again. And I don't know if I was ever fully embraced by the Rangers because I played with the Islanders. Yeah. Um, but that really led to a Stanley Cup and and a chance at uh, doing something that, you know, once you make the NHL, that's your dream. And then staying is your dream. But winning a cup becomes that final piece on the chessboard. And it, and it worked out. So you head to the Big Apple. But before we get into talking about winning the Stanley Cup, you, not me, uh, there was an interesting character in your head coach. I'm curious to hear your thoughts regarding Mike Keenan's coaching style because I had him when I was down in Florida, and it was kind of challenging with him. Well, I think that would be a, gr a gross understatement, challenging. Um, yeah, we, we, we had full-blown mutinies. There were times when it was, we will not take the ice till they fire this coach. Well, you can't hold the NHL hostage. Like, this is not a hunger strike here. We've got to play the game. Uh, but Mike had a way of challenging every player and trying to find what their limit was. And, you know, it, as players, sometimes we're told your coach is right. Do what your coach says. So there's never a limit. There's never a line. And when a coach crosses that line, we just move it a little further ahead. And so for certain players, it was a real challenge. And he always found those players out and never stopped. He was relentless. From a goalie standpoint, uh, you know, for most nights, Mike knew that if he was starting, he wasn't going to finish. And if I was starting, I wasn't going to finish. There were goalie changes. If he could have changed goalies on the fly, he would have done it. So there were challenges through that year and right to the very end. And uh, we had, but we had great leadership in New York. When you've got Kevin Lowe and you've got Mark Messier and you've got Craig McTavish, you know, we probably had 50 to 60 Stanley Cups in the locker room. So it's wow. easy to rely on a Mark Messier to say, go change the attitude of Attila the Hun in there, would you please? Because we're sick and tired of him right now. So Mess was able to do that. Uh, but the, the season did not go without some challenge. There's no question about it. Uh, but, you know, we were a team that just simply won. We won with him, and sometimes we won in spite of him. But we were darn good, and we won. And President's Trophy champions that year, so almost from wire to wire, uh, we were untouchable uh, most nights that we played. And uh, it led to, really, he is a part of it, uh, but ending uh, three generations of hockey fan that had not seen a championship. 54 years, yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, you talk about uh, Mr. Messier. Uh, let's let's go to going into that Eastern Conference Final uh, Game Six, and the he's quoted saying, "We will win," and I mean that just went wildfire through the papers. I thought it was hilarious how big a deal it was because what else? What else would he say? You, you know, are you going to win or are you going to lose? Well, you would. Yeah. We're going to win. <laughs> What would the headline be? We have a tea time for tomorrow. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and that's, that's I guess, you know, I still recall that day and seeing the headlines. And it was all, and again, New York, there, there's, a, you know, enough papers for everybody to get your hands on. But that's that's the headline. That's the cover. We will win. And if anybody can make that assertion, he's the guy. He's got six Stanley Cups, arguably one of the greatest leaders, not in hockey in any sport. Uh, and so when Mark says we will win, well, we're going to follow you. And not only did he say we will win, he scored a hat trick that game and was the dagger for the New Jersey Devils in, in period three 
of a hockey game that really we should have lost if not for Mike Richter. Arguably one of the best games I ever saw him play. We forget that. We talk about Messier's proclamation of winning, but we would never have got to the third period if not for Mike Richter. Uh, Odd man rushes are high scoring chances, and there were no less than 25 of them in the first two periods. So hang them out to dry would be an understatement. But, you know, Mess Mess has that ability, and and he he carried that. He had swagger and... uh, you're right. What else? What, what's what's he going to say? We're going to limp through this one and have a good summer, everybody. That wasn't the case, right? Well, I uh, I was fortunate to play with some really good captains, but uh, I think that his uh, you know track record and just the the mystique that follows that guy that he was put on a, a different level from a leadership standpoint. Not even. You know, he, he he had that status before he got there, but, man, he took it to another level after that game. Well, you know, even when we played against the Vancouver Canucks in the next round, so game seven to, to start that uh, final against Vancouver, winner take all, you know, you watch the opening faceoff and he's he's up against Trevor Linden. Uh, I think he, he speared him. He punched him in the face. He elbowed him in the head. He cross-checked him across the neck. And then he slashed him in the back of the legs, all within about six seconds. All of them would have been suspendable offenses. But it, the message to Trevor was this. Really? You think you got a chance against me tonight? This is what I'm bringing. And uh, Mass had that ability to uh, to take players. to. He, he demanded a lot from us. He said very little at times. But the greatness of Mark would have been the fact that everybody mattered when it came to a, a player a trainer, a person who picked up towels in the locker room, everybody mattered to that team. And he made sure everyone knew you mattered. And that was the greatness of Mark. Forget what he did whistle to whistle. Forget the fact that that 35-pound trophy was lifted over his head, you know, six times. Forget the fact there's a trophy named after him in the NHL. I I, I guess they must have missed our email addresses to ask us, but you know, it's what he did off the ice to make everybody feel like they were an integral part of the hockey team. And um, one of the greatest players I ever got a chance to play with, learned a ton from him, and uh, to this day, continue to learn from him. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, your last stop was with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Was that a team that you hoped that you maybe could play for at some point, being that you were from Ontario? Yeah, I, um, you know, as a kid, again, go back to when I was five, that's when the Leafs last won the Cup, 1967. And, you know, winning the Cup in New York, 54 years and three generations of misery, thinking if I could come back to Toronto and we could do that here in Toronto, my hometown, my team that I grew up watching, the Johnny Bowers and, and Davey Keon. so that tells you our age. Uh, you know, those were great teams. But again, they hadn't had a championship in three generations. They're getting close to four now. But if we could have done that in Toronto, that would have been certainly something very special. So I was being courted by a number of teams. The Montreal Canadiens were one. Toronto Maple Leafs were two. And at the wire, the Toronto Maple Leafs came forward with an opportunity for me. And we were, again, a team that uh, needed to rebuild to make some change. And uh, Pat Quinn uh, came in, and he was the guy. And we were close to winning a cup. We went to the semifinals, which would be you know five wins away from getting to the Stanley Cup and raising it. Uh, but we weren't able to get to the finals, just the semis. And uh, it would have been a dream come true to do that. But it was a special moment putting on that sweater. Player, as you know, they talk about putting on you know Team Canada sweater, or you know if you can pick a team that you'd like to put that sweater on. The Maple Leaf, that was a proud moment for me, wearing that, that sweater from that team. That's awesome. That's awesome. So uh, every player that signs a professional contract, uh, at some point, they have to have the conversation with it themselves. You know, can I do this one more year or is that it? Was that a tough decision for you when that came up? No, you know, I think um, – you know, what? sometimes you, you start the year and you think, okay, is this going to be my last year? It's the start of the year. You have that internal conversation heart-to-heart with yourself. 
And then there are times later on in my career, in my late 30s, I thought about it after each game, thinking, wow, do I really want to go back and do it again tomorrow? It's hard, you know, when you're 36 and 37. Uh, And then I was 40, and I was thinking about it during the game, (laughs) looking at the bench and the door, (laughs) thinking, what if I just went off? Think anyone would miss me? Uh, And I knew at that point that the time was up. And and you're beat up at 40 years old. You really shouldn't be doing and playing in the NHL at that age. Uh, You've done your time. Uh, You'll never get a better job ever. So you really are reluctant to let that one go. Uh, But I I I definitely knew that uh, my time was up. Games when I finished playing, it would take me at least six to seven days to recover. Some guys were covering six to seven minutes. It would take me a long time. Uh, but, you know, I enjoyed every minute of it. And uh, walking away from it, I was I was well assured that it was the right decision. So you, before we leave uh, your player uh, part of your journey, uh, my last season I was in Colorado and got to, you know, go through training camp. I didn't make it through training camp, but – I mean, you got uh, Joe Sackick, Peter Forsberg, Rob Blake, and uh, Patrick Waugh in that. And from a goalie perspective, I've never seen a goalie in practice get pissed off so much when he got scored on. And you make light uh, a lot of of your ability in your career, but you were a heck of a goaltender. What was your mentality when you were uh, practicing? Because you you had to, you know, we had some great players, but... Uh, what was your mindset on, uh, you know, stopping pucks? I mean, were you ferocious like a, a wah, or were you just more relaxed? Uh, well, my nickname was Head Case Healy. So, <laughs> <laughs> I need to say, um, or uh, Ray Ferraro uh, used to call me Barney because I was purple all the time from, you know, getting pissed off. At, at, and all. <laughs> hey, we're all competitive. You know, you are you are paid to not be first star in dodgeball. You're paid to stop the puck. And you're competitive in the sense you want to make sure that you do that. You know, the goalies in the 60s and 70s, you know, the the legend of standing to the one side of the net, just kind of waving a stick at the puck. Uh, the the smoky McClouds of the world that when he played with the Oilers, used to jump out of the way of the puck because his thought process was, if I can get out of the way of them in practice, I can get in the way of them in a game. I didn't really have that philosophy. <laughs> I, I was out to make sure that, uh, I was competitive and stopped. And even when I was not the starter, but uh, the backup, my job was to make sure it was tough to score because scoring in the NHL is not easy. So why should it be easy in practice? You make sure you guys earn it. And so, right. uh, but yeah, a very competitive, a little bit of a hothead. And the nickname Head Case Healy was deserved. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. That paints the perfect picture. So thank you for that. Uh <laughs> You know, one thing that uh, the Players Association does once you do retire is they have that life after hockey program where uh, players can take uh, get some instruction, take courses, weekend seminars to uh, get a little knowledge and skill before they jump into the business world. Uh, you got into bro- broadcasting once you retired. Did that happen immediately or did you? was there a little bit of a gap? a year or two before you transitioned into into that next phase of your life? No, you know, when you're in Toronto, uh, news travels fast. And once the news was out that I was not returning with the Leafs, it was that same day that Hockey Night in Canada called me to say, would you have some interest in, in joining our, our team? <clears throat> and uh, my message to them was pretty simple. Um, I'll try it. If I stink, and maybe some people do think I did, <laughs> uh, you never know. Uh, but uh, – <laughs> If, if if I didn't think I was up to it, um, I would give it up relatively quick. The fortunate thing with Hockey Night in Canada, whether it's working with a, a great like Don Whitman or a Bob Cole, they, these are the best in the business. You really can't look bad because they're that great. And so decided to try it and did it for many, many years. We were the first group to ever go between the benches. That became a broadcast location. It led to me having the ability to to do a number of Stanley Cup finals with 
some of the greatest people that work in trucks and out of trucks and in the broadcast to work with some of the greats like Ron McLean and Don Cherry. List goes on and on to get a chance to do the Olympics on a number of occasions. And uh, so that that second journey for me, the transition was real quick. Stepped into it, didn't know where it would take me. Uh, and, you know, initially I was in a stream without a paddle, but uh, with some great teaching from some great people, found a way to get the paddle in my hand and and direct the ship the right way. But again, a great, great experience. And, you know, we know about hockey. Uh, we know a thing or two about a thing or two. Hockey would be one thing we know about. And so it was easy to transition to that side because it wasn't about changing tires. I don't know how to change a tire. I don't know how to fix a car. I don't know how to do woodwork. I don't know how to do plumbing. That would have been a tough transition. This one was relatively easy. I thought Pierre Maguire was the one that started the between the glass. Yeah, good one. Next trick. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah he, was, he, all, he also was almost a general manager of 32,000 different teams, but that didn't work out for me either, did it? Uh, no, the, uh, the, the lockout in 2004, Hockey Night in Canada tried to do it to see whether getting the fans close to the ice would be something um, that would be appealing. And so we had we tried it with some of the uh, the teams like the Marlies. They were still playing, so we tried it there. And then when we started back up after the lockout, we actually had some unique stuff. I recall one of the first games I did with Pittsburgh, we had a radar gun between the benches, and I would clock the speed of shots from the point. And, uh, you know, so here I am between the benches, this radar gun in my hand, and Sidney Crosby skates by me and looks at me and says, what the hell is that? <laughs> it's the radar gun. I just decided to bring this from home. Uh, but, yeah, no, Hockey Night in Canada was the first to, to try it, to do it, to champion it. And uh, proud to say now that is a, that's a broadcast location in almost every arena. That's one of the things that they, they love to put in. Again, the game is very easy from the booth. You're hundreds of feet away. It looks very slow. The ice looks big. Uh, from between the benches, you can really dictate and tell what speed is. You can tell what a hit feels like, whether it's thunderous or not. You can sense fear on the bench, whether a team's panicky or not panicky. That is tough to do from a broadcast booth, but easy to do from four feet away. And so it has led to some uh, interesting moments that you can provide to the fans that are sitting at home that, you know, would love to play in the NHL, aren't there, but bring the fans closer to the game. Uh, that's what we've all, that's what we tried to do. And uh, that's what they continue to do uh, at the national level. You know, I, I, I was there, I played there and I also enjoy, I, I enjoy those segments as a, as a fan now today. So uh, pretty cool. Thank you. Uh, Let's transition back uh, in the early 90s. My wife and I went on a cruise, and unbeknownst to us, there were four hockey legends on the ship. Jim Craig, Darren Pang, Stan Makita, and Ted Lindsay. They were promoting something, I can't remember, uh, and they had uh, a few meet and greets that they had to do. So my wife and I introduced ourselves at one of those, and we ended up having the opportunity uh, to spend some time with them uh, the days that followed, which was amazing to hear all the stories. Uh, at the time, I had no idea what Mr. Lindsay did for all the players that played before us. Uh, you hold him in the highest regard for what he did, and he also gave you some advice along the way. Talk about Mr. Lindsay for a bit, if you would. Well, if you think about what Ted was about, uh, you know, he, he basically gave up his career for all of the players uh, in the sense that he started the NHL Players Association. And he started it because of a lack of fairness for other players. A friend of his that he played with died because he had no place to live, was penniless, and died living in his car. Um, there were players that he would wear his underwear for the morning skate, and the rookie who was in the afternoon would get a wet pair of underwear that he had wore in the morning skate unwashed, here you go, you're the rookie, this is what you get. <laughs> there was a lack of fairness with regards to salaries, a lack of fairness with pensions, a lack of fairness with a whole bunch of the working conditions for NHL players, and he sought out to make a difference. He wasn't looking to create union kind of tactics. 
He called it an association, but just wanted people to be treated fairly. And as a result, at the time, uh, he was blackballed in every way, was sent to Chicago, and his career ended much, much too early. And so Ted did something for all of us to make a difference for all of us. And so I you know, can't say enough great things about Ted. You know, even when it came to 2004 and we wanted to get pensions a little bit higher for the 140 guys that had paved the way for us, he was the guy leading the charge with Gary Bettman and with Bob Goodnow to make, again, a difference well long after he had retired. Uh, and Ted gave me some advice along the way, I think, which is really, really good. And that was we were sitting one day and he told me that he liked the corners. And I, as a goalie, wondered, well, Ted, I've never been in one, but what what does that mean? And he told me that he liked them because he could tell right away when he was going into the corner, whether he was going in with a man or a chicken shit. <laughs> and so the message to me was in your life, don't be afraid to go in the corners. Don't be afraid to make a difference. And that stuck with me. And when I look at Ted's career and what he did for us, he knew right away he was going in the corners, but he could tell if he was going in with a man or a chicken shit and he wasn't. And so he really made a difference uh, and was willing to go into the corners for you and I to make a difference for every player. And every player that plays today, like, you know, cuts a check for 15.5 million and 8 million and 10 million. Uh, those were not the days when, you know, Ted Lindsay would have a pension of about $8,000 Canadian for, for, uh, for a year, not $8,000 a shift for a year. Right. And so he, he sacrificed a lot for us. And couldn't say enough great things about Ted Lindsay and what he gave to every current player and every player who played before the current players. He was a real pioneer and uh, made a difference for all of us. So that impacted you because you end up leaving uh, the broadcasting sector and you end up joining the uh, NHL Alumni Association? Yep. So it was, a, again, a chance to make a difference. And, you know, like our job with the alumni – Every player that plays the game, there's a couple of things I know. Um, one is they're all going to retire. Sidney Crosby will retire. He's not playing for uh, – I'll get Ovechkin as an alumni, and he'll be on our team. But not every player transitions well. And so our job with the alumni is pretty simple. It's how do you make tomorrow better than today? And it might be things like I need a little help financially. It might be I need a little help emotionally. I might be, I need a little bit of help to make tomorrow better than today with mental wellness. It might be, I, I need a little help in just transitioning to, to find what I need with purpose for the next journey. Because believe me, all players, that second wave and that journey that they go on after they play, they deserve to have as great a journey as when they played. And so that's our role is, you know, if we can fill in the void to make a difference, make tomorrow better than today for players, spouses, and their kids, that's what we do. And we do it every day and we do it with passion and we make sure that uh, every player uh, as they need things from another teammate, uh, like we do as good teammates, we get it done. Well, thank you for uh, continuing to pave that path that he, uh, Mr. Lindsay started. Um, I can't thank you enough for your time. First, I want to congratulate you on an amazing career. Uh, you know, I think any, you made it to the top, we made it to the top and it's, it's a special, it's a special thing. You know, I, I don't know if I really, uh, knew how special it was until years after I retired, but congratulations on a great career. Um, I want to, uh, just say that my wife and I, <laughs> we have a deal. You might have one with yours, but, uh, if, if someone comes knocking on the door, for her at the time it was Henrik Lundqvist, and for me it was Katy Perry, uh, you basically would open up the door and go, oh, uh, she's in the study, uh, I'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, uh, for me, I, I don't know if I would pick Katy Perry now. It might have to be you because I've enjoyed this conversation so much. I think I would just say, hun, leave, we're going to crack a bottle of wine, we'll see you later. <laughs> I love it. And uh, I'm happy to join you at any time, I tell you. Uh, but it's been it's been great. Uh, again, we talked right from the start. Every player's got a story. 
let's tell those stories because it really matters. And so uh, it's been enjoyable as well. And I'm happy to do it anytime. And, uh, and again, you're, you're doing great work and telling some great stories about some great people that uh, have played the best sport in the world uh, better than any of the others. So uh, I'm proud to say that, hey, basketball, football, and baseball might disagree, but I, I don't really care what they think. I know what I think and what you think. So that, we're all that matters today. Well, thank you for uh, sharing everything uh, and continuing to, like you say, you know, uh, how can we make tomorrow better than today? And the other message I want everyone to remember is don't be afraid to go into the corners. Uh, don't be a chicken shit. Uh, thank you, Glenn. I really appreciate it. Uh, you were amazing. And maybe we will do this again sometime. Anytime. Love to. Cheers. Well, that concludes another episode of the Hockey Journey Podcast. I can't thank you enough for stopping by and listening. I hope you enjoyed Glenn Healy's Hockey Journey. And if you think there's someone in your circle of family and friends that might enjoy this episode as well, please share it with just one person. It will really help me in growing this hockey community. Again, I appreciate you being here. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. I hope to see you back here soon. And do me a favor. Make someone close to you smile today. All the best, my friends.